Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Have you ever thought about how sound is plugged into our prenatal existence? A fetus hears its mother's heartbeat, and by 24 weeks... Many babies will turn their heads in response to voices and other noises outside the womb. Today we'll learn about the importance of sound to our experience of viewing a movie. Director Steven Spielberg has said, Our ears lead our eyes to where the story lives. Spielberg is among the impressive filmmakers featured in the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. We'll hear from producer Karen Johnson later in the program. First, acrobats and clowns under the big tent? Sure. Opera singers? Well, that's about to be a thing. The beauty of fall brings pleasant temperatures to Atlanta, and along with the autumn breeze, opera will be in the air. The Atlanta Opera will perform in an outdoor venue on the grounds of Oglethorpe University. Here to tell us about the Big Tent series is Tomers Vulun, the general and artistic director of the Atlanta Opera. Tomer, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be back. We are eager to hear about this specific tent. Please tell us who was involved and how the tent design was conceived. So it all started with a simple idea, which one thing became clear during this pandemic, and that is being outdoors is safer than being indoors. There's so much information that keeps changing and so many opinions about how to protect oneself. But one thing everybody agrees on is that being inside is more dangerous. And so with that in mind, we started brainstorming what would be a, a good way for us to move forward in, this, in the fall. And this idea of being outdoors in a baseball field, in an open baseball field, while having the protection of some sort of roof above our head and having a circus tent, which um, walls will be removed or lifted so that fresh air can come in and out, started to kind of percolate in our minds. And we started exploring our options while talking to uh, an amazing group of epidemiologists headed by Carlos Del Rio, uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who's our head advisor in terms of safety, because safety is number one right now. And at the same time, the idea of live performance is something that is, has been an absolute obsession for us because we realize that with all our gratitude to those handheld devices 
those iPhones and iPads and TV screens, there is absolutely no replacement for the miracle of live performances. So this is how it all started. Hmm. Now, how will the audience be seated inside the venue or the tent, underneath the tent? So first of all, uh, safety is everything. For that reason, we have a limited number of tickets available. So there's only room for 240 audience members at a time, which is why we have nine performances for each production and we have two productions. And they will be seated at pods rather than the typical seats. Each pod is basically a table with chairs around it that is socially distanced from the other tables with at least six feet. We're going to encourage the audience to wear their masks. Uh, the singers will be at least 15 feet away. And the orchestra is a reduced orchestra. In other words, a world where we can put 60 people in the pit right now is not a realistic world. And so the orchestra is going to have a reduction, no more than 10 players, no chorus. Uh, there will be elements of chorus, but they will be zoomed into the event. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, because the concept of a pandemic is not only our own reality right now in the world, but it's also going to be the reality of the productions themselves, the concept themselves of the two shows that we're going to do, which are Pagliacci, uh, which happens in a circus, how perfect, and a, an incredible opera called The Kaiser from Atlantis by Victor Ullmann. Yeah, I was wondering what you had to consider when deciding the works that would be performed. So Pagliacci is a shoe-in, right? I mean, <laughs> clowns in the circus, hello. Uh, but Kaiser from Atlantis is a piece that I've been obsessed with for years. And uh, it was written in 1943 in a concentration camp in Theresienstadt by a wonderful composer that left the world way too early, Victor Ullmann. And it's a story about this emperor that makes a pact with death. He realizes that the more people he kills, the more power he has. And so his power gets bigger and bigger until death realizes that he's been taken for a ride and he decides to go on a strike and break his sword. Nobody dies. And that is the demise of the Kaiser from Atlantis. And so when Hitler realized that they're rehearsing this opera in Theresienstadt, he sent the SS troops and they executed everybody. They broke into the dress rehearsal. They sent everybody to Auschwitz. The piece was never premiered. The piece was never premiered until 1975, when it was premiered in Amsterdam by a director named Roda Levine, who is one of my mentors and whom I assisted later in 2001 in a production in Boston University, Kaiser from Atlantis. And what's great about the piece is that there are characters there that are circus characters like the Harlequin and the girl. And the interesting part about Kaiser is that it shows the tension between the arts and performers and the government and organizations and powers of being 
that have power to change our lives. That basically things that happen in the world may be a war or a pandemic uh, or a, the Great Depression have a profound impact on everybody, but especially on artists. And it's all connected to this ethos of a circus. Circus, along many decades, has been a symbol of grit and perseverance. It didn't matter whether it was the Great Depression or World War II, the circus would park by the railroad station. The performers will find a way to perform no matter what it was outside because the community needed live performance. And that's how it's all connected for us. Wow. The last time we spoke, Tomer, you told us the exciting news of forming the Atlanta Opera Company Players. Are members of that company appearing in these productions? Absolutely. We, we have an amazing luxury casting waiting for us. Some world-class singers are going to be a part of this. So, for example, Kaiser from Atlantis is going to be uh, starring Michael Mays, who was our Sweeney Todd in Dead Men Walking. The character of Death is Kevin Burdett. The characters of Harlequin is Alex Schrader. The drummer is Daniela Mack. The uh, girl is Jasmine Habersham. In Pagliacci, Talise Trevine, who just sang our best, is singing Nedda. And uh, Reggie Smith, who was also in Porgy and Bess, is singing Tonio. So it's this incredible group of Atlanta-based singers who are going to go on this adventure with all of us and perform in the Big Ten series this fall. I know that you have a special interest in movies, Termer. As a matter of fact, hearing you speak about the circus, Fellini came to mind. Of course, that was a career-long theme in his work. And... You have spoken about your admiration of Alfred Hitchcock as well. Tell us about plans for filming this opera season. So first of all, uh, it's uh, films were always, are always a part of my inspiration. Uh, and in this case, you're right, Fellini actually has a movie uh, about clowns. It's actually called E-Clown. <laughs> and uh, I think he did it in the 70s. So that was an inspiration. But another inspiration are books. And there is a wonderful book called 1984 that everybody knows. Everybody read that in high school. And 1984 is a huge inspiration for the world of Kaiser from Atlantis. While another book, Water for Elephants, which is a book about uh, life in a circus, is the inspiration for Pagliacci. Now, talking about filming, which was your actual question, we have created a digital media department at the Atlanta Opera during these summer months for a couple of reasons. Number one, we want to make sure that our performances are captured on the highest quality in the best way that we can. And we created the infrastructure that will allow us to broadcast those shows to people's homes so that in times like that, in times of a pandemic, when people are not comfortable to come and see the shows, they'll be able to enjoy it at home. But also we realized that uh, if we create those capabilities, the shows that we will capture uh, will be able to be broadcast beyond Atlanta 
which will be a wonderful thing. So we are now thinking not only in terms of live performances, but also in terms of uh, digital performances. Thomas Vulun, I marvel at your resilience, your optimism, and the way you have taken the Atlanta opera into this COVID-19 era with such an uplifting attitude. Thank you so very much. I, I was about to say, what's the alternative? <laughs> not singing, not performing, crying. Uh, you know, we've been hibernating for seven months and we can hibernate for the next seven years. But I think if we don't have that resilience and we're not alone, the Atlanta Opera is not alone. There are many companies in Atlanta that have the same attitude and I think there's something special about this community and I'm proud to be a part of it. So thank you for that. And thank you for hosting me, Lois. Tomers Vulun is the general and artistic director of the Atlanta Opera, their reimagined 2020-2021 season called the Big Tent Series will include six productions and opens in October with Leon Cavallo's famous work, I Pagliacci, performed in repertory with The Emperor of Atlantis by Victor Ullmann. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. A recent documentary explores an underappreciated aspect of filmmaking, sound design, making waves, the art of cinematic sound, demonstrates the history and use of sound in motion pictures. Filmmaker and producer Karen Johnson joined me last December ahead of the documentary's release. Here, she talks about her collaborators and the origin of Making Waves. I am the outsider to sound in our production team. My two producing partners are both uh, teachers. They've both taught sound. The director, Mitch Costin, is um, the K. Rose endowed chair in sound at the University of Southern California. And she got that chair, which George Lucas and Steven Spielberg set up after a 30-year career as a sound editor. And my other producing partner, Bobette Buster, is kind of um, a story consultant and expert who has taught storytelling all over the world. And she also taught at USC for a while. She was my professor at USC when I went there. And so Bobette, while teaching a story class at Pixar, found out that Gary Rydstrom, who is the sound designer who has won the most Oscars, he works with Steven Spielberg and Pixar, that he was in her audience. And afterwards, she went up to him and said, you know, why hasn't anyone made a documentary about sound because a really brilliant documentary has been made uh, about cinematography called Visions of Light, The Art of Cinematography, or the something like that, Visions of Light being the best way to find it. Um, and so Gary said, well, we're busy working, but uh, <laughs> it would be great if somebody did. Why don't you go talk to Midge Costin and put something together? And Bobette did that. And then uh, she came to me to produced because I've been producing documentary for a number of years. So that was how it originated. And the reason that it hadn't been made for all these years, in part, um, and probably in large part, is because of the rights that would be involved to include all of these clips and the complexity of making that work out. And that is a concept called fair use, which is an exception to the U.S. copyright law. So oh. we had to 
we had we have a number of lawyers involved and and carefully structure our movies so that we could fair use all these clips and put together the story. The documentary begins with the beginning of life itself, and we learn that sound is plugged into our prenatal existence. A fetus hears its mother's heartbeat. How does this example foreshadow what we'll learn about sound in this documentary? The film opens introducing us to the fact that sound is our first sense in the womb to really develop. And it is... It's interesting because it's almost becomes buried once we open our eyes and start to see. And it what it foreshadows for me in the movie is the fact that after you watch the movie, you will probably be much more aware of your sense of sound and you will kind of awaken within yourself an attention to that sense that sort of became a little bit of a stepchild sense when you opened your eyes. Quite literally. You have an A-list of film directors, too many to name right now, but the likes of Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, and George Lucas, Barbara Streisand, they make the point that people talk about the look of a film but not the sound. How important is sound to our experience of a visual medium? Sound is absolutely important. I don't even think you would enjoy a movie anymore. Those of us who are accustomed to seeing movies with sound, I, I can't even imagine watching silent. I don't. I, I'm embarrassed to admit I'm a film person, but I don't enjoy silent cinema, you know, from, from way back. Um, but I just... It's critically important. And for me, when my producing partner first came to me about being involved, the first thing I reflected on was, as a child, my sister liked horror movies. And I did not, still don't. And so the compromise was to turn the sound off. And horror movies are absolutely not scary without sound. I mean, it's like... You can almost process anything visually, but with sound, it's a whole different matter. So So I think it may be Spielberg, or it may be Walter Murch, who makes the point that sound is 50% of the movie. Both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have that sort of their mantra. Steven Spielberg says... Our ears lead our eyes to where the story lives. I found one of the most fascinating aspects of this documentary, the part about saving Private Ryan. Would you talk about how sound design was used in that film and what made it extraordinary? I think uh, in that movie Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg used sound in many different ways. When you're designing sound on a film today, like Saving Private Ryan, you're bringing together a rich, complex orchestration of sounds. Then every film I've worked on with Steven Spielberg, he gives a gift of, here's a scene, Here's a moment, and I'm counting on sound to help tell the story. Here you go. What strikes me most about, especially the opening of Private Ryan, is that it was designed to use sound to tell a part of the story that it's not showing you. So. A scene like that fully takes advantage of how a soldier takes in war, which is a pretty narrow point of view. Sound got to handle the scale of it. And we spent a lot of time on that first 25 minutes. It was weeks and weeks and weeks of just balancing 
all the sound effects that Gary and his crew provided. He particularly remembered the sound experiences of the World War II surviving soldiers that he had interviewed and the things that they told him about how they experienced the war and the sound of the war. And he and Gary Rydstrom, who did the sound design for that picture, used those concepts, some of those are those experiences in creating the sound for the movie, like where they wanted to mimic the experience of the soldier who was near an exploded bomb and lost his sound, his um, sense of sound for a little bit. So I designed a sequence where when an explosion hits near Captain Miller, all the sound goes out. And that came from an actual veteran that told me that was how it affected him. So it put you deep inside his experience. And so they actually kind of do that in the movie, goes inside Tom Hanks' head when that happens. And, you know, they also crafted the sound of the tanks coming in in a way that was almost as if they were predatory animals and coming after them, that, you know, they really wanted to convey the feelings with the sound from what those soldiers experienced. I thought not that that character lost his hearing for the moment, but that in the horror of what was going on around him, he obliterated all the sound. I mean, in his mind, nothing existed except seeing his friends who were all blown up. You may be absolutely right. It's, you know, a lot of how you interpret a movie and how it speaks to you is a very personal thing. Would you please explain how the different elements of sound used in movies are similar to the instrumental groupings of an orchestra? I loved this part of the film. I think that the use of the orchestra graphic and analogy for sound design um, is one of the best things about the movie because it makes it really interest it makes it really easy for people to understand all of the aspects of what comprise sound design because a lot of times when you talk about sound design and even in the process of making this movie talking about working on this movie people would say oh i love i love music i love the i love the score well in fact the score is just one part of the orchestra And there are all these other parts of the orchestra, voice of the actors being a big part of the orchestra and how that's recorded and manipulated for the movie, sound effects being another big part of the orchestra. And each of those parts then break down into subparts. Each instrument grouping has subparts as well. So... I think that it's a way that we can start to hear those separate pieces of the orchestra when we listen to a movie. And I don't mean of the real orchestra, I mean of the sound design orchestra. That graphic was indeed very effective, and the the analogy is so perfect. It is Walter Murch's analogy, definitely, that he uses and has applied to the films that he's done the sound design for. And he was very guided by music. Didn't he study with John Cage, or he was very drawn to the music of John Cage and the Paris avant-garde sound scene? He definitely was. He went to Paris as a young man and... What he discovered there were movies that were using sound in ways that he found more compelling than the movies he was seeing in America, and also people who were experimenting with sound in ways that were avant-garde and different than what was uh, he was seeing in America. And definitely John Cage was someone that he was influenced by 
whose concept was every kind of sound is a kind of music. As one whose training was in music and with a 40-year career in radio, I was thrilled with the documentary bringing out the fact that some of the biggest innovations in film sound had their roots in radio. Would you elaborate? Yes, definitely. Uh, A number of our interviewees talked about their background with listening to radio broadcasts as children. Robert Redford talked about how he would listen to the radio and how the sound effects that were used in old radio programs really brought those radio programs to life. George Lucas talked about the Whistler and the Shadow, which were radio programs that he listened to when he was a young man. And so this concept of using the variety and complexity of sound to bring to life a whole story that you're not even seeing carried over then when we started creating stories we could see. And the same kinds of techniques informed film sound that had been used on radio. And obviously one of the big pioneers of that was Orson Welles, who started in radio and then became a filmmaker. What was revolutionary about Alfred Hitchcock's approach to the use of sound? Alfred Hitchcock actually uh, created a sound script. We have interviewed for our film Liz Weiss, who is a a cinema professor from New York and and an expert on Hitchcock. And she's written a whole book on him called, I think, The Silent Scream. And Liz is the one who talked about and told us that, that he actually would create a sound script. Right. You see the sound, not sound effects necessarily, but the sound that the viewer is supposed to hear in a script as the actor sees the lines. Yes. And I think, so that was a very interesting note on how how much he respected the sound half of the picture of the movie equation. But also, I think the most stunning thing about him is his use of silence and how he knew to sculpt silence so that it would terrorize us, <laughs> um, you know, make us sweat, whatever. Afraid of birds for it's, life. Yes, exactly. I find that really intriguing. It's one of the sound concepts personally that I really related to is the idea of silence. And it made me realize some of the filmmakers that I really like, like Sofia Coppola, who have an appreciation uh, for using silence in their movies to, and Robert Redford, who I always really loved his work as a director. Anyway, Hitchcock kind of goes back to his work with silence. Hmm. Makes me think about my piano teacher demonstrated how Beethoven's use of silence, pauses, occasional rests between phrases were an important component of the music, that that was not the absence of notes. That was part of the music and the sensory experience you were supposed to have. I love that. I think absolutely it is. We'll return to my conversation with filmmaker Karen Johnson about the documentary Making Waves after a quick break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. 
you love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's get back to my conversation with Karen Johnson. She produced the documentary Making Waves, the Art of Cinematic Sound. Here, she talks about the sonic impact of Star Wars. I believe that Star Wars was so astonishing to us in sound because, first off, George Lucas the visionary filmmaker who created it, and I say visionary, see, I could say ingenary, because (laughs) he really got from his very first uh, moment of thinking about it that it was a vision and sound together equation. And so knowing that to really be moved by these other worlds, they would have to feel real to us and he always wanted the soundscape to be made up of real sound. So he tasked Ben Burt with creating that world of real sound for every aspect of his story. And he gave him a lot of time to do it. One of my favorite things also in the movie is I love Ben Burt's Sound of Star Wars map that we got a shot of in his office and shows where he recorded various sounds of Star Wars across the L.A. County. <laughs> Would you talk about the Wookiee? The Wookiee, yes, yes. So the Wookiee, obviously, George knew that was a very important character for people to relate to his story, and so he wanted Ben Burt to work on that, finding the voice of the Wookiee right away. And so Ben um, set out to look at a bunch of different animals and try and figure out where he could find this kind of vocalizing that could seem like this great, big, hairy, but conversational being. And um, he ended up really teasing those sounds out of a baby bear. We were trying to find an animal that had enough vocal expressiveness in its sounds that we could use it for the Wookiee. So there was a young bear named Pooh, and we spent an afternoon with this bear in a pen, coaxing it to say different sounds. The way they got it to make sound was to show it bread. It loved bread. The bear would... And then you give him the bread, and then he'd be like... George wanted to know before they filmed the movie, how would the Wookiee sound? Well, you said it, Chewie. This is not the way that most filmmakers worked at that time. I knew the sound was part of the foundation of what the movie was going to be. So everything had to have been figured out way ahead of time. You know, the way that sound can be manipulated now is so amazing, and and even more so now than it was when he was doing Star Wars. But, yeah, he crafted that into the Wookiee's language. (laughs) And R2-D2, it's explained how we finally are let into what R2-D2 is saying through C-3PO. So he's the interpreter. But it's so amazing to see how these sound artists achieve these sounds. I loved the explanation of how the sound was created for King Kong some decades before that. Yes, that was created by Maurice Spivak, who maybe is the, one of the earliest sound designers, somebody who actually really 
manipulated sounds and designed them a particular way he wanted them. Many of the techniques we use to manipulate sound today were pioneered on that film. The bulk of it is all about characters that don't exist. So Murray Spivak had to get creative to find the right sound. He went to the Selig Zoo, and he recorded all these tigers and lions and bears. I got all the roars I needed, and I played the tiger growl backwards against the lion roar forward, and it gave me sort of an uncanny roar. He also made other sounds of King Kong. We have um, just some images of of him working on those. But, you know, the sound of King Kong banging on his chest and just all all of the the other, you know, similar to Star Wars, the other characters that inhabited King Kong's world, he was sort of working away on those. And at the time, I think that um, Ben Burt told us that the studio didn't even realize that he was sort of back in the, you know, back in the depths of the studio somewhere doing all of this amazing sound work. Because, in fact, something the film brings out is that the studios had this industrial attitude toward sound. They had, I guess back then you didn't call them files, but they had recordings of crowd noises, cars crashing, and they would just plug them in. The Westerns have the same gallop and horses whinnying. When did it become a recognized art form within the studio system? Uh, Walter Murch is the very first sound designer. And that was a credit that Francis Ford Coppola gave him. I heard Walter ask about it when we were um, interviewed one time, and he said, Francis asked him, what credit would you like? And he said, he thought about it, and he thought about the idea of an interior designer, I believe he said, designing, you know, the space in a room. And so he said he thought about himself and the fact that he was designing the sound in an auditorium, you know, in the space of the air, essentially. Um, and so he came up with that credit, sound designer. Mm. said, I'll, I'll take sound designer. <laughs> and a college major in that area was born. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Another important chapter in the film is devoted to Apocalypse Now. How did that movie change the way sound was used? In Apocalypse Now, Walter Murch worked with Francis Ford Coppola, who were at that time working in a, in a production company together and um, with George Lucas. And Coppola knew that he wanted the sound of Apocalypse Now to be as powerful as the visual story that he was telling. During the shooting of Apocalypse Now, Francis heard a record by Tomita, which was The Planets by Gustav Holst in four track. The idea was that you put speakers at each corner of your room and you sat in the center and you were surrounded by the music. Francis heard it and thought, this is how I want the film to sound. But all of us working on the sound Richard Beggs, Mark Berger, and myself, we'd only worked in mono. None of us had even worked on a stereo film, let alone this whole new six-track surround format. We were exploring the unknown, going into this whole new continent where we moved objects all the way around the theater, which had never been done before. Thank <laughs> you. 
If you're breaking new ground, then people who are interested in new ground come because they want to participate in it, and more ground gets broken. So Walter, similar to Hitchcock, wrote basically a sound script for Apocalypse Now and came up with this concept of his sound team being like an orchestra to help him create the various sounds of war for Apocalypse Now, and then also designed exactly how you would hear those in your movie theater when you went to see the movie. So one of the most stunning examples of that is a helicopter that goes across the screen as you watch that movie. And literally when people sat down to hear that movie, it was the first time they really experienced that immersive feeling of the helicopter starting on one side of the theater and traveling all the way across it to the other side. And so that was really stunning at the time. I mean, now we sort of take that for granted a little bit, maybe not focused on it, but we certainly experience it all the time because that is 5.1, which has become the standard for theaters. And and home entertainment, yeah. These effects were made possible because of the development in sound technology for home audio entertainment. The film does a good job of showing what it's like to hear in stereo and then quadraphonic and then the surround. The film also does a good job explaining how rock music recording had an impact on sound design and films. One more way the Beatles were geniuses. (laughs) Yes, and and, uh, also, obviously, their manager, George Martin, genius, to recognize that the John Cage idea, all things are music. And so when they did uh, number nine, uh, which was a song that came out in the 60s, that a lot of the sound designers that we interviewed very specifically remembered hearing that song and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is sound design. This is like you could do this with, with movies, what they're doing in this song with all of these evoking all these feelings from these simply these weird s- sounds. It's so interesting to stop and think about how different people are wired, I guess, how our brains and senses vary from one person to another. These sound designers clearly had that inclination or talent early on, perceiving the Beatles song that way and later translating it into their film work. I just thought about an Italian Baroque composer. Have you ever been to Venice? No, sadly. The Cathedral of St. Mark's, one of the most magnificent buildings on the planet, has two choir lofts. Oh, 18th century stereo. So the composer wrote for this antiphonal style And in the echoes of this great cathedral, it was an 18th century sort of prelude to stereo. It's like immersive cinema, right? Except it's immersive church. Can you imagine just the reverb that people attending church were experiencing? So the documentary goes on to explain how the digital age made even greater achievements possible for sound designers. And the documentary ends with this wonderful montage of film sound. The work you all do make massive contributions to the telling of the story. And I love all your cleverness and ingenuity. And I love the sense of fun. It makes these moments eternal. 
You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Me, me, oh. Come on, man! I wonder, is that sort of the filmmaker's love letter to the viewer? It definitely is. I think that the film itself is a love letter to cinemaphiles like us everywhere. And it's a bit of a lesson, too, that lets you enjoy what you already enjoy even more at a different level. Well. Karen Johnson, congratulations to you and your colleagues on an outstanding documentary in Making Waves. Movies will never sound the same to me. And you'll probably notice new squeaks and pops and footsteps all around you. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Filmmaker and producer Karen Johnson. Her documentary, Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, is available on streaming sites such as Prime Video and YouTube. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, our guest will be Darren Strauss, In his new novel, The Queen of Tuesday, the author imagines a love affair about his grandfather and Lucille Ball. They actually met at a party given by Fred Trump in 1949. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.